2: Welcome to the Pack Filler Interviews, I'm Pat Bulger. Well, you might be in the midst of the Tour de France Femmes, or you might be just in plain old tour withdrawals. Either way, you need to know there's plenty to look forward to. Heck, in case you didn't know, the world starts in just a few days. I know it's early this year, and this year's Vuelta looks like, well, at least on paper, to be potentially more explosive than any of the Grand Tour this year. So with this in mind, we have a great interview on tap today. Our guest has not only ridden the Vuelta, but he's won a stage. Wait, nope, he's won two stages. Wait, nope, he won two stages in the same year. He also had many other additions to his Palmares, as well as being a thoughtful, introspective guy who's really easy to talk to, and I had a good time recording this interview. So let's see what's up with Ben King on the Packfiller interviews. Alright, today's guest has a career that consists of eight grand tours, stage win in the Criterium International, four national championships, and two wins in the 2018 Vuelta among many others over his fifteen years in the Pro Peloton. Let's welcome to the show Ben King. How are you man?
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me
2: on. My pleasure. You know, although it's incredibly formulaic and, you know, it's it's the classic story structure, I like to begin most interviews with a little perspective and try to get an idea of where cycling came into your life. So if, if you had an origin story, if Ben King had that, a movie that was being made about his origin, what would that origin story be and where would the, the first couple scenes of that movie take place?
3: the first scene was probably my friend's dad pulling me out of the bushes on my first mountain bike ever (laughs) mountain bike ride ever. Um, we did a ride for his 13th birthday. I was 12 years old. Um, had never been for, you know, I could ride a bike, but, uh, had never been for a mountain bike ride. And, um, you know, every time he dragged me out of the bushes, I, you know, I popped out of the other end of the trail looking like the Loch Ness monster. (laughs) And, um, but I just had a huge smile on my face, I remember, and I loved every minute of it. Knew that I had found a new passion, a new hobby and interest. Um, and my dad used to race um, competitively. He was actually teammates with Nate Brown's dad Okay. and John Kelly, who's Kelly Benefit Strategies, um, which is one of the partners of Human Powered Health Team. Um so a a lot of a lot of history there um that kind of relates to and follows through into my career um the point of that being that he knew what he was doing he but he quit racing when i was three years old um when i showed some interest in it he started riding again and um started taking me out on on group rides road rides and recognized potential in me so um, he started coaching me and, um, you know, getting me exposure to every opportunity, um, you know, driving around the state and eventually the East Coast. Um, and then even flying me out to the national championships in Park City, Utah, where they were um, when I was 16.
2: So this was a, a lot of, a lot of. Now, t- sorry, I'm, I'm stammering here a little bit. Just when, when would you say bike racing was officially a part of your life i mean was it uh, that that 12 year old mountain bike ride or was was racing really something that kicked in a little bit later probably 16 17
3: probably that year when i was 16 my dad told me that if i followed a structured training program uh and put the work in that he would take me to the national championships so i had a, a big goal in sight and locked onto that. And, um, you know, I, I didn't take a day off. I followed the training that he gave me. And um, so that was the first year that it felt like uh, I was doing it, participating in it as a, a sport and not just a, a hobby.
2: Yeah. And your, your amateur career seems, at least on paper, to have been pretty short. It's been a pretty quick rise from that that start into, you know, taking this to the point where it's something that you could do for a living. What it is it about cycling that seemed to click for you, especially here in the States where we see the U.S. demographic being honestly primarily kind of a crit scene and things like that? Here you are as a, as a kind of a climbing specialist.
3: Yeah, I was, I mean, I think just my physiology is I'm kind of built just to be a grinder and I loved the freedom of hitting off into the mountains and, um, spending all day just exploring, um, pushing myself, you know, seeing if I could keep a new highest average speed or break my times up the local climbs. And so I was always pushing myself, um, I think that sort of just built built my engine yeah. to where it was competitive in um, longer road races and stage races, races um, and not necessarily uh, an engine for the U.S. crit scene.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: But back so- then there were more road racing opportunities. Um, the- you know, even five, six, seven, eight years ago, there were lots of, big professional stage races in the u.s um and plenty of amateur road races even stage races that we could travel to on the weekends
2: if if we could only trace back and figure out what happened other than maybe the litigious nature of of our country and running out of roads and opportunities in which to do so
3: factors for sure
2: yeah yeah so your your dad was the instrumental person in that was there somebody who kind of took took you under their wings and took the reins as far as as proceeding into the professional ranks
3: um i mean definitely my dad throughout my entire career awesome. it was cycling was something that always kept us close um even if we were separated by oceans um it was and is something that continues to be a bond between us um but when i was 17 i joined the hot tubes development program yeah Uh, so toby stanton got me my first uh european racing experience uh you, you know every team that i rode for there there are too many people to to list um it was always important to i guess the relationships were always what are still the most valuable thing that i take away from my career um but were also the things that helped me be successful during my career yeah um so every team that i rode for um i made good connections learned what i could from people with more experience than i had um and continue to stay in touch with those people
2: yeah um, is, of all the teams you rode for uh, and the teams that you were a part of, which one seemed to be the best fit throughout your career? This one where you're going, okay, this is a magic time. This is a great place. Everybody who I'm involved with seems to be just clicking perfectly.
3: Um, I always had individuals that I clicked with on every team that I rode for. Um, every season was... A journey, yeah, um, with ups and downs, and so I don't think you know, I can't say that one was better or worse than another. I each each one shaped me as an athlete and also as a human. Um, sometimes you know you'd go through a period where the team was sort of dysfunctional and then um you'd kind of have to hit reset or or you know the team would go through a merger at the beginning of the season and it's like all right you you had been riding for this team that was finally starting to click and get some momentum and then all of a sudden a sponsor pulls out we merge with another team and then Mm -hmm. 50 percent of the team is new um and then it's like starting from scratch again um so with every new team there was uh, a a rebuilding process um that was sort of a trend that I felt during my career, um, was that in general things kind of would start slow and we would just have to stay positive, stay focused and keep putting in a hundred percent, um, into our training and, and races. And eventually when things would start to click, um, that momentum would continue.
2: Yeah. It I just I'm I've been at this for a long time to be honest. And you know, I'm I'm if, if I go a little too far back, please forgive me, but I I can remember the time where seven eleven entered the professional Peloton and the, the quote American team was something that had just, you know, kind of changed the dynamic of the sport. You rode for multiple American based teams, um dimension data being one that was not based in the States. Was there a different feeling between those two makeups, or was it just because as the sport has become so multicultural, multinational that that there was really just no type of a switch there.
3: Yeah, I would say really no type of a really? switch. Even the teams that I mean, the teams that were quote unquote based in America were really only registered in America. Sure. Um, you know, we might have a training camp in the United States, but that was about the only thing that made it American. Um, you know, the on the world tour teams, the most us riders I think I ever had on a team was like five or six (laughs) out of 2830. Um, so it's just an an extremely international sport. I'd still love to see at some point, a truly American world tour team. Um, but it's, it's really difficult. You know, that was always sort of the mission of, um, human powered health was to bring an American team to the, uh, to the tour France one day into the world tour. Um, But given the lack of opportunities for U.S. racers, um, you know, competing with budgets much larger than yours for the best American talent, um, for example, if, you know, if if just being American all of a sudden makes you more valuable, um, or, you know, that you have more negotiating power being american um then you sort of put yourself out of the game just on a price standpoint um so i think it would be hmm. some it would have to be something that riders bought into um in terms of creating something new but it's just so tough because our careers are limited and you got to make a hey, while well, the sun shines
2: yeah yeah so Kind of taking a little switch here. The the demands. Uh, Mati Mahoric in in the tour gave a really powerful interview about the demands of being a pro. About about the demands of a pro cycling career. Um, he talked about the demands on family, the physical and mental and such. Um, what take us inside what that what that kind of requirement what that lifestyle is like trying to to constantly live that life and and stay focused on on a specific objective with all the irregularities and the un, you know, unsure future about everything from year to year i mean there the job security of a pro cyclist has got to be a constant stress too when you you know got maybe a two-year contract and you know that if something goes wrong you're all of a sudden scrambling Sure.
3: Yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of seasons for plenty of riders that, um, you know, they do everything right and still end up at the end of the season without a contract. Um, for one reason or another, you know, the team folds and every other team is full. Um, so the, all of those reasons that you just listed are, are the reasons that I decided to transition, um, on my own terms. Um, while i'm still young enough to have an a different successful career um and before i'm burned out and hate the sport i still love it i'm still you know just grateful for everything that i got to experience through it um i did achieved way more in the sport than i ever would have dreamed possible when i was just getting started out um And so, yeah, and now, now with a, a young family, um, it was just the right time for me to make that decision.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, I, the demands of the career are one thing. The demands of riding a Grand Tour. You you started eight Grand Tours in your career. That is an uh, unimaginable type of a physical demand upon you. What was... And and also I'd I'd actually like to ask, was there ever a moment where you found yourself at any of these large races going, Oh my gosh, this is I am at the Tour of Spain, I am at the Tour de France, I am here, this is something I never would have imagined. Was it a step by step process where you're 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 slowly growing into it? Was there any type of a eye opening moment where you just looked around and didn't realize where you had been?
3: Yeah, and that's something I you know, I tried to hold on to. I never wanted to lose that sense of excitement, um, enthusiasm. Um, no matter how many big races I did, I always tried to appreciate what it would have been like to 17, 18 year old me, um, to imagine, you know, to, to see myself in that position. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, they are incredibly demanding. Um, there were so many days in the grand tours when, you know, two weeks into a grand tour that, and those are the things that, that you don't see on TV or that you don't, don't get reported in the media, but all of a sudden you wake up and you've got a cough and, you know, a, a low grade fever and yeah. you just feel miserable, some kind of infection brewing, uh, in your lungs. And you've just been racing two weeks, you know, in, in all conditions, um, and you've got a 230K stage in the Italian Alps, and it's raining. <laughs> like, and you just don't even know how you're going to get out of bed and walk down to breakfast, let alone, you know, put on your chamois cream and saddle up yeah. in three hours and somehow get through that. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that, a lesson i guess from my careers how much we're actually capable of and that just getting started is often the hardest part I although the alps were still hard <laughs> yeah. um, but you just you know it was it was impossible to imagine even being physically capable of completing those those things and then somehow you just you just do it yeah so I mean, you kind of just have to turn your brain off so many times in the sport, you just like it's so futile to ask how or if. Um, you just you just do it.
2: It seems you know
3: how to do it, and if you can, you will.
2: We on the outside have such a rose-colored glasses image of of what that lifestyle is like. You know, we're thinking, oh gosh, everything's taken care of, all the shiny bikes, everything like that, and not considering the element of the fact that if it's if it's crappy and rainy, um, we don't have to go out and ride. We, we or or if if things aren't going well, we can we can drop out of a race and and have an ice cream and go back home and go to work on Monday. And I'm sure that the uh, once you're on the inside, it is so much more demanding on that, and the mental fortitude you have to be able to maintain to to hold on to be able to do what you guys do has to be just absolutely astounding.
3: Yes. <laughs> didn't really hear a question in that but no. i agree with you yeah um
2: well take me into some of those high moments predominantly um as and i don't know if you know if this would be considered what you would say one one of your best years that that 2018 vuelta with two stage wins Um, was, was something just going right that year, that time? Was it just where the, the bike didn't even feel heavy at all and everything was floating or was it just, did you surprise yourself?
3: Um, I, I knew that it was something that I was capable of. Um, it went better than I could have planned for myself, uh, in a volta that year, but, um you know, with the numbers that I'd been hitting and training. And honestly, I feel, I feel like my, my breakthrough year was like 2016 and the best that I've ever been physically in my lifetime was in July of 2016. Really? Uh, and I had been building and working really hard to try to make the tour de France team that year and didn't make the cut. I, I didn't get selected for whatever reason that year for the tour de France. Um, And so I was just at home for a month without racing, just taking Strava's. And, um, that was a great feeling. I mean, not for me, just out in the mountains by myself with this incredible amount of fitness where I felt like I could do anything that I wanted on the bike. Um, and no one's, no one ever saw it, but, um, you know, that's a highlight. Uh, but that, that was where I would that's what I would consider my breakthrough. I always struggled with, um, equipment changes. And even if you ride for the same team, they might get a new bike sponsor, a new saddle brand or whatever. Um, but I just, at that point had everything dialed and every year after that, we were switching something, switching bike sponsors, switching saddles or pedals or whatever it may be. And, Um, there was always like a big adjustment where I would finally feel like I was starting to get dialed again, like mid season. And then, um, and then have to make another change. Um, and then, yeah, for 2018 things just clicked. And that's also where I realized, and it's kind of shocking that it took me this long to acknowledge it from, a uh, more of a, take a more concrete view of it, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that my body just responds really well to extreme heat. Um, I've never really performed well in the cold. I always thought that I should, people always told me, you know, you're from, you know, the mountains of Virginia, you're a tough guy (laughs) when, you know, when it's cold and raining outside, 80% of the other guys have already quit, but you're, you know, you have, you're strong mentally. And, um, for you it's like half the battles already won and that was the that was the attitude i always took but but my body just never responded well in the cold and you know i'd finish all those races and like confused of like well i you know I was super jacked up i was really excited i i tried my absolute best but i just like just wasn't working mm. um but on the days when it was 100 degrees and 90 percent humidity oh god um, those are the days that I just seemed to perform better. Didn't seem to, hey. it, it, I did some work with, um, one of the trainers of dimension data that year, Kieran O'Grady He's with Israel now, but, um, we did some, uh, like heat training protocols and he actually measured my sweat rate, um, And so I actually finally had some concrete data to say like, okay, I am actually good at this. (laughs) Wow. That, that,
2: that, had to have been an enjoyable test. (laughs) Just seeing how much. Yeah, no, it wasn't. And the other thing is
3: my, uh, I, we didn't have air conditioning in our apartment in Italy that year. And it was (laughs) 40 something degrees Celsius in our apartment. So it was like a hunt. I was falling asleep in a puddle of sweat every single night, taking a cold shower. And then doing my you know five hour rides in the like peak heat of the day for those adaptations coming home and having no no reprieve no escape from the heat wow. ever and so I think it just pushed my body to make these crazy adaptations um, but I carried with me into the Vuelta that year so you know the stages that I won were um, they were in extreme heat after long you know grueling days in the breakaway where everyone else just kind of started to come unraveled by the end of it. And, um, I felt like I, the heat hadn't really affected me in the same way.
2: Most writers are, are more than happy to walk away with a title of a stage win of a grand tour. It's a career maker. Um, you walked away with two that year, um, for a non-sprinter, that's obviously pretty, pretty darn special. Um,
3: a non-specialist of any kind i would say really yeah yeah exactly <laughs> good, a guy a team team guy
2: yeah now t- now talk to me about that first one and then was the second one something where you were like oh I'm, I'm going again this is in the this is in the cards or was it oh wow i feel good again today we have the opportunity i can't believe because that's kind of a lightning striking twice moment
3: um yeah i mean like i said i um i knew it was something that I was capable of Uh, but obviously a lot has to go your way. Um, the second stage, nine, the second stage, um, I wasn't even the one who was supposed to be in the breakaway that, that day, but the start was delayed a few kilometers. And so the neutral was extended. And when we started, I was the only rider in position to attack and we knew that we needed to have someone in the breakaway, so I didn't make the first attack, but I followed the first attack just because I knew my team, my other teammates weren't going to be able to do it, mm-hmm. um, and that was the one that stuck. And so there I was in the breakaway again, um, which was good, you know. I wasn't going against orders; so I was trying to take some pressure off of the other guys. Um, but I ended up in the breakaway, and uh, you know, but with Balcom Olama, Thomas, again, Dylan Toons. Um,
2: yeah, uh, just hacks, complete hacks. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I backed myself. I kept my eye on those other guys throughout the day. Um, I never counted myself out, but it was one of the reasons that I tried to like anticipate the final climb and, um, get a little head start. which, which is why, yeah. So I, I attacked early. Thomas again is the one who started the early aggression with like 35 kilometers to go, um, and then, yeah, the breakaway was just attacking itself from then on out. Um, I was able to escape 10 kilometers before the final climb started, um, and had built a a one minute advantage going into the climb. So it was it was very tactical, um, but all of those all of those near misses and and, you know what ifs and close calls um, over years of of racing and years of racing for breakaways. Um, they all gave me that tactical perspective, tactical um, awareness to sort of seize those opportunities when they presented themselves.
2: So the Vuelta, you you started. I mean you 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 did you competed in a zero, correct? Yes. A- and 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 the tour. T- compare the the three grand tours and what the experience is like and how they differ between all three.
3: Um every edition is different, Free Trace. Um physically the hardest grand tour that I did just purely going by the numbers was the I think it was 2019 Vuelta was like on paper, just way harder physically just to get through it than any other grand tour that I did. Um, the tour is more intense. There's more pressure. Um, there's, it's more of a production around the race. There's a lot more distraction. Um, the Giro is, you know, fits all of the stereotypes of Italian romance and drama and, you know, they love the long stages and, um, you want it to be as epic as possible. Um, I loved the Giro. I I wish I'd been able to do more than one. Um, but just the fact that I lived in Italy for the majority of my career, um, made it feel almost like a, a home race more so than the others, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So did you have a preference were was it those longer grand tour stage races was it the single day events was it the shorter one week short type of stage races was, was of all of the above what would you have preferred to have have focused upon primarily?
3: I preferred stage races uh whether it be week long races or grand tours.
2: Okay. Just those opportunities to kind of keep it going—that rolling chess match type of a thing—and and probably yeah. the breakaway opportunities, correct?
3: Right. Yeah. Um, you know, depending on how the previous stages have gone, uh, it's like the it, like you compared it to chess. The the board changes. Yeah. And so there are a lot more factors to take into consideration uh, when planning your own race.
2: So the the sport has obviously gone through multiple changes. I mean, I don't know about you. I started I started following the sport pretty heavily in the nineteen eighties, and you, you weren't born yet. But um, but the, every generation team seems to bring a different approach to the style of racing, and and one would almost say that we're in a type of a, a youthful, enthusiastic style of racing that we're seeing in in pro cycling. Um what are your thoughts on the current generation of, of cycling and how the sport has changed since your time in the peloton
3: um obviously the sport has not changed as much in my lifetime as it did in yours but I still <laughs> think um, you know when, when I got started the power meters weren't a thing yeah and just thinking about the way that has changed the game um, from a sports science perspective, um, you know, training and influencing tactics and all of the above. Um, it's hard, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around that sometimes. Um, but it brought on this huge evolution. Um, obviously also at the beginning of my career, there was sort of the big, um, all of the big doping fallout, all of the scandals before my time. Um,
0: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
3: Riders, I think we're all of a sudden uh, afraid to cheat because there were there was more effective testing introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my generation also felt a, a moral obligation to change the image of the sport. Um, I mean I, I know that that I did. Um, if cycling was going to be saved it was up up to us to to represent it in a way that people would would trust and respect. Um, things slowed down in uh, in the beginning of my career it was slower in 2012 2013 14 around 2015 is where I would say like all of a sudden there was this this shift where things just sort of started getting faster and faster on an annual basis um, you and- know in terms of like what you said you, you call this generation like youthful enthusiasm I think a lot of that has to do as well with like talent scouting um, when I joined the world tour with Radio Shack I was um, you know the, the neo pros' duty was to be a domestique to ride the front yeah. no matter what and I, I didn't have the engine to go for myself I know that um, but it wouldn't have mattered who I was I was a Neopro my job was to support the guys who had finished on the podium in, in grand tours um they had earned that place no Nia Pro was going to get those opportunities no matter what um but now because teams can look at the numbers of the the old guard and look at the numbers of some kid who submits his like strava yeah. files and and you know swift data um, they can say wow this kid actually has potential to to be even better um we should give him chances so you could have you could take a a kid from California that's never raced before but has this huge engine and and he could he could get a world war contract like that's actually happening and not only is he getting contract um he's getting opportunities and then you have you know the remcos and yeah tades and vingos and i mean you name it there's there's so many right now that are just freakishly talented um but we can we can id them now they don't have to necessarily come through the ranks um the way that I feel like my generation had to a little bit more.
2: And the tactical mind of it also seems to be something I guess now because race directors can be in your ear the entire time that that tactical game is something that can be taught along the way. Am I am I mistaken that that, that a rider can just kind of do what they're told and have the numbers to do it that all of a sudden that changes that learning curve?
3: Um Yes and no. I mean, there's still a learning curve. Yeah. Um, look at, I don't know. Take, I think Jay Vine is a good example. Yeah. Um, he got a, a contract off of his Swift performance and he's an incredible talent. He just didn't have experience racing in a Peloton on a road and in races of that level. Um, and it took him a while to get the hang of it. Um, and he's probably still learning, but, uh, he was so strong that he could sort of make up for his mistakes early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but once he started to race more efficiently in the Peloton and make better tactical decisions, um, you know, he's, he's proven to be one of the best riders in the world. Um, but they knew that he could be because of his, his data
2: this I don't want to make this too depressing of a question but um and I, I probably shouldn't phrase it with what's wrong but what's what's wrong in the United States in your opinion why why aren't we seeing a opportunity for a full U.S. based team why aren't we seeing the the tour of California's the the I think as far back as some of the you know the, even the regional races that, that used to happen uh Colorado things like that um what's changed here in the united states in your opinion
3: i i probably don't have enough information to to give a valid opinion on that um
2: it just seems our numbers I you know yeah okay i you know i always refer to the the fact that i i go back to the fact that i remember the days when usa cycling required teams to put on races just something as simple as that where if you had a club you had to put on some sort of an event. There were more opportunities to race. I don't know what it's like where where you are. I'm on the west coast, and and it and it's hard to find bike races anymore. And that is that is a yeah. developmental thing for juniors.
3: It has to make I mean it has to make financial sense too to yeah. promote a race. I mean, um, my wife and I have promoted uh, a charity event. Um, we did it in 2019, and then we brought it back again uh, this year. In June, um, and even the way that the costs for a, a small event like ours increased just in that short period of time in between our events, um, it's crazy. So it's it's hard from that point of view to begin with.
2: Yeah. So tell it's me, so
3: much more expensive than it was probably, um, you know, five years ago to put an put an event on.
2: Yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm in the same boat. I I put on an an event myself and yeah, exactly. People are complaining about increased entry fees. It's it's not that you're you're sitting back and, you know, I'm not Scrooge McDuck lying in a pile of money after these events are over with. I'm lucky to hopefully break even and, and keep things going mentally to be able to do it again next year.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So what does what does life after cycling consist of before I hit record you and I were talking about the fact that that there are some things you miss, there are some things you don't miss. You're still involved in the sport. To be sit back at 34 and consider yourself retired from a career seems to be a weird thing to think about. But what is what does life consist like now for Ben King?
3: Um that is still taking shape. Okay. Um it's been very busy. Um I like to mention I guess like I don't really know how to bring this up but um, my wife and I lost our daughter in October Um, she was born in July the beginning of July with uh, an extremely rare uh, genetic disorder Um, her impending birth was one of the factors I I took into consideration when um, when making the decision to end my cycling career I decided to I made that decision in May, um, raced the national championships at the end of June and was home for Olivia's birth in July. Um, we then spent two and a half months in the NICU, um, fighting for, you know, fighting for a diagnosis, fighting for an explanation for, um, the trouble she was having, um, we finally received a diagnosis through rapid broad genetic testing and were able to take her home um it was unfortunately not a good diagnosis but um having having an answer having an explanation um and it opened the door to more resources it gave us more confidence um in the the difficult treatment decisions we were having to make enough confidence to, to bring her home and manage her care, um, until our eventual passing at the end of October. Um, after her death, we founded a 501c3 called Olivia's Light, um, with the mission of funding that rapid broad genetic testing for families who, um, are desperate for answers, who are, both in an ICU and, and outpatients because what we learned through our experience and the reason that we decided we chose this um, cause to serve
2: mm.
3: is that we realized how many patients are being sent home from the hospital with a Band-Aid for their extreme symptoms like epilepsy and apnea and um you know, trouble feeding. They're they're getting sent home with feeding tubes and um, CPAPs and yeah, um, medication for seizures. Um, but they don't actually know what's causing those symptoms. Um, and we want to we want to play a role in changing that because the technology does exist and has existed for for ten years for for all of those families to. To get answers um for one reason or another it it hasn't become a sort of a first line tool that all departments in these big hospitals are using um the geneticists are really busy the wait list i've heard of of wait lists to see geneticists that are up to two years long Um, so we're, we're able to hopefully step in and um and fund testing for wow families who couldn't otherwise afford it because it's it's still expensive. Um, So that's one of the big things that we've been focusing on. It's the reason that we uh, promoted the cycling event in June. Um, That was a a really big job. It was really, we had a lot of support, but it was really just my wife and I who who did everything for that. Um,
2: What is the name of that event and, and what type of an event? Fondo style or?
3: Fondo style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ride home roads okay and then we had a, an after party with an auction um it was a blast we're, we're still thinking about next year um if and how we want to do it uh but we had a great time it was a very successful um it was in in some ways also a retirement party for me given what we went through yeah. at the end of last year i never really got to i didn't even get to acknowledge the end of my career um nationals was my last race and i at the time, didn't know it. Um, but with, with Olivia's complications and the, and support from my team at the time, human powered health, um, I was able to, to be home, to be involved. The team didn't ask me to, to return to racing, um, which was really generous of them. Um, because there was, there was a lot to do. Um, and a limited time with that we had to spend with Olivia. So, um, yeah, it was not really the way that anyone in the family had, had imagined, um, beginning, a a major transition. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was, yeah, it was pretty, a pretty tough year. Um, And and also it also kind of delayed my, um, progress on identifying a new career what direction I wanted that to take
2: and you spend so much time focused on one very specific goal one objective one target a career path and then have it to have it come to its conclusion and then have something as as traumatic as what you've been through has yeah I can only imagine you haven't had really any time to to stop and take it in and and gain a perspective about where to go from here that's 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 brutal I
3: have made progress and Mm -hmm. I, you know, I hope to have some, some news to share soon. Um, but I, I kind of know more or less what, what direction I'd, I'd like to go. Yeah. Uh, Just waiting for, for everything to fall into place.
2: Staying in the sport?
3: No. No. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the opportunities that would be available to me, uh, that would leverage my experience in the sport would require, the same, if not more yeah. travel than I, than I had to do as an athlete. And the main reason that I ended my racing career was, um, so that I wouldn't have to travel yeah. quite so much. Yeah. Um, otherwise I would prefer to just keep racing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. Okay. So ride home roads. Is there is is there a website or someplace in which, and for Olivia's light, is there a place that people can kind of research and, and see what's going on with all this stuff?
3: Yeah. Um, I'll share Olivia's light website because, okay. um, we're still, we're still thinking about ride home roads and when, and if we want to do it
2: again, sure. Uh,
3: <laughs> Olivia's light is Olivia's org. Okay. okay. Easy, but the dot org is important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put a link to that in, in the show notes for sure. So people can kind of find out how to get a hold of that. Well, this is uh, this is a tough transition from that. First of all, thanks for for sharing that that story. That's that's I, I had no idea, and that's I I don't have anything other than cliches to say. I'm so sorry for what you've gone through, but that's. I'm sorry for what you've gone through, man. That's that. that thanks for sharing that man. and, and doing something with it, you know, to take, especially that challenge for you and your wife to, to have lost a child is, is sometimes it absolutely, you can't come back from something like that. And and the fact that the two of you are obviously still, you're taking it, you're taking your memory and you're going and you're doing something with it.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It felt like kind of the least we could do to, to create a legacy for Olivia. Um, to honor her memory. Um, it felt like a, a responsibility that had been placed on us. Yeah. Um, as her parents. Um, so yeah, but I mean, a lot, a lot of the credit goes to my wife. She's been incredible. And, um, you know, she, she actually started a full-time job five months ago. Um, so I've been full-time daddy daycare and, um, you know, managing a lot of the operations for For the event that we promoted and um now managing renovations at at the home and we've we've kept ourselves extremely busy (laughs) um i've continued to to interview and network and um have made a lot of progress recently so like i said I, i hope there's news to share soon on that front
2: um awesome awesome So this is this is something I like to do in my interviews that we just kind of to end the show with a little bit of fluff and a little bit of fun. I call this the rapid fire questions. And these are just 10 short questions that you can you can choose to answer or you can pass if you want, if that's okay. All right. All right. Number one, super simple. Favorite bike you've ever owned.
3: Supposed to be rapid. I know. <laughs> um, I've liked a lot of the bikes that I rode. Um, yeah. I really liked the, the Trek Madone. I think it was the okay. six point eight, maybe before they put the brakes underneath.
2: Okay. Yeah.
3: Um, I like the I like the classic geometry. Like if it's not if it's not broken, don't fix it. I loved the Cannondale Cad Nine. I liked everything before disc brakes. Um, I'm allowed to say that now because no one's paying me, but I still think this brakes in general are slower. Some brands have figured it out. Others have some work to do. Yeah. Um, you know, the disc brakes break better, but the bikes themselves don't go faster yet. So,
2: well, that actually takes one of my farther questions away. So that's a good one to know because I was going to ask you about your opinions, disc or rim, but uh, yeah. Okay. No, that's good. We, I mean, we we're old school. I, mean, I
3: love it. Now that I don't have to go fast, I, I love disc brakes. Um, <laughs> I love them on my mountain bike.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a situation for for disc brakes that work incredibly well. I agree on a mountain bike, hundred percent. My wife and I ride tandems, and if a disc brake on a tandem saves the entire game, you're not cooking your, you're not blowing a tire because you're you're cooking your rims. Yeah. Uh, favorite pre and post ride beverage. What would you start off with? What do you finish with?
3: coffee
2: how do you like your coffee mm,
3: I like a double espresso okay started putting a little bit of cream in don't know if that makes me a wimp
2: but now <laughs> no, you're good and post-ride um,
3: and post-ride especially this time of year would have to be a slushy
2: okay <laughs> a specific flavor
3: um no, not necessarily. I'm trying to think of it. I mean, the gas station where I end a lot of my rides has a, a flavor called Tiger's Blood. <laughs> I think I know what
2: that is. Doesn't it have Red Bull in it or something like that?
3: No, no, oh. I don't think so. No, Was it's that... all like naturally flavored. Oh, okay,
2: okay. <laughs> um, Best team kit you have ever seen? Best fashion style team kit you've ever seen?
3: Oh gosh, that is a tough one. I like simple. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. I like simple.
2: Okay. Leave it clean. Kind of classic look to it, right? So you're not necessarily... Okay. Uh, You're not a billboard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Other than Eddie Merck's best writer ever.
3: That's tough. Best... All-round rider, best GC rider, best sprinter.
2: Your call. You you can just pick climber. Yeah,
3: I'm gonna have to pass on that one.
2: Okay. Okay. No, that's fair. There. It's. It's. Well, this is kind of unfair too. It's the next one because it's almost like having to pick a rider. Current band or musician that you love.
3: Um, I feel like all I've been listening to lately is um, Coco Melon okay and, uh, my my two-year-old's favorite <laughs> songs Been listening to a song called we're going on a bear hunt it's been on repeat yeah. for for the past four days um <laughs> if i get to listen to music um i like to find new stuff um and i like my taste has gotten heavier and heavier um i like august burns red animals as leaders um that genre
2: okay okay uh bike packing yes or no
3: um i don't need another hobby i have way too many hobbies (laughs) so So it's a no for me no i'm just not gonna get into it
2: okay okay
3: not not that i wouldn't enjoy it just like i don't need another hobby yeah yeah
2: most recent movie you love now that's probably hard with a two-year-old in the house
3: yeah that is tough um Yeah, we we watch more series. I feel like now. Okay. Um, Is there one?
2: Is there a particular one that you really got into Uh, a a series? series? Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, We just watched the final season of Jack Ryan.
2: Did I haven't started that yet? I and and how did it finish off? Was it worth it?
3: I mean, worth it for sure. You gotta okay. finish what you start. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, good point. Good point. See, because I, no, I thought season it's two got, I thought season two then got a little cheesy. It's your entertainment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Apple or Samsung. Apple. Okay. Uh, it's almost second to last question. Special occasion meal. If you, for your birthday or upon a you know after the a stage victory or a race victory. What what is your special occasion go to meal?
3: Um, I mean, one of my favorite things to to make at home is uh is venison steaks.
2: Oh wow! Okay, okay, nice. Or burgers, yeah,
3: or bolognese oh. or meatballs or anything. I don't know. We, I, I am a hunter, so we we eat a lot of wild game.
2: Oh wow! Okay, I haven't had. I've it's venison steak. I've only had I've had venison in hamburger in in a burger or in uh I have a relative who makes venison sausage that's actually very good Mm, nice yeah um okay last one and and you can go with this i don't know if you if you're up to speed on it but uh final question who will win the 2023 vuelta if you had to pick
3: it's gonna be really interesting yeah because the two favorites probably have already won a grand tour this year um but then you've got like remco who's fresh
2: yeah
3: and has been targeting this so i don't know i'm gonna just kick back and enjoy it we'll let it unfold i think it's it's always it's always interesting it'll be interesting to see the the tactics in the first week or two um the way they raced the tour i I thought was super interesting i mean by they i mean uae and Yamovisma. visma yeah um
2: Now, correct me. I, I, I Primoz and Jonas are both going to be there too. So it's almost like bringing back the the bring it and the band back together from last year's Tour de France,
3: right? Which is what I meant. I mean, they've, yeah. they've won the both of the Grand Tours already this year, and then yeah. I, I saw something about how um they would potentially be the first team ever to win all three Grand Tours in a season.
2: Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. With my limited statistical knowledge, I would say that would absolutely be the case. I mean, I, the only thing I could think of is going way back to like the Renault-Giton days where they might have done it, where actually probably one writer did all three, <laughs> you know, Bernardi Bernardino days, but, but that would yeah. be it. So, yeah. Right on. Well, uh, once again, um, org is where we want people to go take, take a look and and find things out. Um, is there any other way people can kind of follow along with your adventures or do you kind of like to keep those cards close to the chest?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, on Instagram, I'm B K I N G one three seven. Um, I haven't been super active there lately, but, uh, we'll post when I have something to share. Um, while I've also been spending a lot of time and energy on wildlife photography and I have a, a page BK nature photo. Okay. Um, and my website for that is bknaturephoto.com.
2: nature Awesome. Well, cool, man. Well, um, first of all, thanks for your time. Second of all, thanks for the, the your your great career it was it, it was it's awesome to fo- have followed you along your adventures and and you know us don't think that we took it for granted uh, you know watching these these races and watching what you guys did and and as you said the the unfortunate responsibility that you guys had placed upon your shoulders, not only did you want to be great bike racers, but you had to change a, a, a cultural shift of where our sport had been in a dark time. And, and to come back from that was, was obviously a responsibility you guys didn't ask for, but you were thrust into. So uh, th- thanks for doing that for the sport we love.
3: Uh, yeah. The sport we love. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor. Um, You know, grateful for, having been in that position.
2: Yeah. And, and good luck on your next steps, man. Good luck in your next adventure. I do want to say on a personal note, personal note, um, I was a stay at home dad for the first five years of my son's life and they are the best five years I ever had. So, um, you know, if anybody, (laughs) I don't
3: take any of the time that I've had to spend with him for granted. I I know it won't last forever, but, um, you know, it's been, it's been really sweet.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Good to hear, man. Thanks again.
3: For Sure. Thanks, Patrick, Pat. Sorry, Pat. (laughs)
2: great talk great career great guy and a pretty amazing perspective on things if i don't mind saying so once again should you want to look out for ben be sure to check out his instagram as well as oliviaslight.org guess that's it for another episode of the pack filler interviews we'll see you out there on the roads be sure and like subscribe and be sure and Tune in to our regular podcast Tuesdays live right here in the Rim Break Bar at Packfiller Studios. Or just head over to packfiller.com. We'll catch you next time.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.